In the last session, you were introduced to the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew's Gospel. In this epic sermon, Jesus challenges us with the message that God is not satisfied with rule following and box checking. God wants something much deeper and much more fulfilling for each of us. God wants a change in our perspectives, a change in our inner dispositions. He wants us to discover a motivation that lies somewhere deep within us, much deeper than anything shallow or self-serving, much deeper than what society or even religion may expect of us. And Jesus, who speaks boldly and with God's authority, knows that this change in perspective, and indeed this total change in life, requires moving past self-deception and examining the true motives behind the decisions we make and even the good things we do. Let's look together at a few key points from the remainder of the sermon, chapters 6 and 7. The first verse of chapter 6 will clue us in to a major theme. Jesus says, But take care not to perform righteous deeds in order that people may see them. Otherwise, you will have no recompense from your heavenly Father. Notice the key phrase, in order that. Jesus is not only interested in what we do, but in why we do the things we do. He is interested in our intentions, our inner dispositions. In Matthew 6, Jesus preaches about almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. In each of these areas, Jesus offers an example of people who do a righteous deed, but do it for the wrong reasons. Their selfish motives essentially spoil the righteousness of the deed itself. Let's look at these examples. When you give alms, do not blow a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, to win the praise of others. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that others may see them. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. They neglect their appearance so that they may appear to others to be fasting. In each case, the motivation is clear. The hypocrites, or actors as the word means, are literally performing righteous acts, and for one purpose only, to be seen and praised by others. They aren't giving alms in order to serve the poor. They aren't praying in order to be in relationship with God. They aren't fasting in order to express repentance or sorrow. Rather, they are doing all of these things for themselves because it feels good to be admired. It feels good to be praised. It feels good to appear better than everyone else. According to Jesus, the good these hypocrites have done outwardly is null and void, canceled out by the selfish motivation with which they did it. In each case, Jesus says they have received their reward. The Greek here literally means that they have been given a receipt. They will receive nothing less than what they wanted, the praise of others. They have been paid in full. The problem is this, they will receive nothing more. Praise feels good in the moment, but it is fleeting. Praise leaves its recipients wanting more and more, but feeling empty. Thus, the hypocritical cycle continues, a righteous deed for selfish reasons. Wanting to be respected or thought well of is a natural human desire, and it can motivate us to do good. But what Jesus is warning us about is a deep-seated hypocrisy, 
an inner disposition that forms over years and becomes a way of life. But just as a habit can be formed, it can be unformed. And this is what Jesus is coaxing us toward. No matter where in this process of forming or unforming we may be, Jesus' words give us much to ponder. Rather than being satisfied with ticket punching or box checking or receiving a receipt marked paid in full, Jesus urges us to yearn for more. But this yearning means searching ourselves, our inner dispositions, and our true motivations. Are we doing good deeds in order to be noticed by other people? Or are we motivated by our relationship with God and our love for others? Do we want a fleeting reward that puffs us up for a short time? Or do we want something real, solid, and eternal? As we try to sort all of this out, Jesus has some advice. Whatever good we do, he says, we should try to do it in secret. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to live secretive lives or be overly scrupulous about every action, but it means that the best antidote to becoming intoxicated by public acclaim is to not allow the public to acclaim us in the first place. If no one sees our righteous deeds, then they can't praise us for it. Let's look again at the text. When you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your almsgiving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. When you pray, go to your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not appear to others to be fasting, except to your Father who is hidden, and your Father who sees what is hidden will repay you. Notice that in each case, there is still a reward for righteousness, but the one who practices a quiet righteousness, the one who is righteous only before God and for God, receives not a human reward, but a divine one. Your Father will repay you. This time, the Greek word doesn't just mean receiving a receipt for services rendered. This time, one is not receiving a cheap reward for a cheap action. Instead, a truly righteous act, an act centered on one's relationship with God, receives a reward or a repayment from the Father. We might speculate as to what this reward from the Father may be, but we likely have a sense of it from what we have seen and experienced in our own lives. Of course, we look forward in hope to a heavenly reward, an eternity with God, but I suspect there is even more being promised than that. We might envision it like this, Think of a large tree laden with fruit. There is low-hanging fruit, even in the spiritual life. Quite often we are satisfied with grasping and eating that low-hanging fruit, and there is some satisfaction in it. Our bellies are filled for a time. But Jesus is urging us higher, to reach higher, to climb higher, to want something more. The fruit at the top of the tree is fruit of a different kind. It doesn't just give us a fleeting feeling of fullness. Rather, it can sustain us, nourish us, help us to grow in our relationship with God and others. And while we're up there, reaching for the higher fruit, fruit like loving our enemies and refusing to judge others, fruit like doing righteous deeds for God alone rather than for ourselves, we might look around and notice how spectacular the view is. Rather than only seeing what is immediately around us 
as we do when we're busily gathering that low-hanging fruit. Now we have a much fuller, much more accurate perspective of the world around us and our place in it. At the top of the tree where the golden fruit is, we see our place in God's great plan. We see all the way to the horizon. Later in the sermon, Jesus explains it this way, in much starker terms. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? Then I will declare to them solemnly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. These words certainly have implications for salvation and eternity, but they also have considerable implications for here and now. God doesn't know the person who does good things for the wrong reasons, even things as great as prophecy, exorcisms, and mighty deeds. Indeed, when hypocrites, people who have essentially been play-acting, people who wear masks to hide their true selves, whose primary concern is their own image. When hypocrites beg God for entrance into the kingdom, he solemnly tells them, I never knew you. Few words in scripture are as chilling as this, not to be known by God. Of course, God knows everyone, but Jesus is talking about the kind of knowing that means being in a real relationship, knowing the other's voice, the other's ways, the other's heart. Knowing and being known by God, this is the greatest reward we could ever receive. And it is a reward with tremendous implications from here to eternity, from here to the horizon. So the choice Jesus places before us in this great sermon seems obvious, but searching out our inner motivations, admitting the truth to ourselves, and reorienting ourselves in the ways that Jesus asks, this whole process is notoriously difficult, and it is a lifelong endeavor. The choice is always set before us, whether we will settle for a receipt marked paid in full, a receipt that will leave us all paid up but wanting more, or whether we will seek out the reward that only God can give, a reward that is solid, lasting, and real. The wrong choice here is tragic. I once heard a homilist put it this way, why are we satisfied with pennies when a pot of gold is ours for the taking? With this choice in mind, let's turn for a moment to a few of Jesus' teachings about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount which will continue this theme of examining our inner dispositions. As we've already read together, Jesus urges us to pray in private, in our inner rooms. There are several layers to this image. First, Jesus is speaking quite literally of an inner room, a room that cannot be seen from the outside of the house, a room where no one can see us praying. Some translations refer to a private room or even a closet. But another layer is suggested by the NABRE's choice of inner room. When we pray, we are to go to a place deep within ourselves, to the inner room within our hearts, and there where no one else sees or hears, we are to spend time with God. Again, there is no reward here except knowing God and being known by God. Jesus also warns us not to babble when we pray. He says, in praying, 
Do not babble like the pagans, who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Just as God isn't motivated by outward displays of righteousness, he also isn't impressed with the length of our prayers, especially when the length is made up of empty words that may just as well be noise or babble. What Jesus is saying here might be paraphrased by the old adage, quality over quantity. Another helpful distinction might be to understand prayer as speaking with God rather than speaking at God. A little bit of silence or fewer words on our own part may allow God to get a word in edgewise on occasion. Another difficult area of the sermon, and the last I will comment on, becomes a little less difficult when we view it through this lens of inner disposition. That area is forgiveness. Look with me at Matthew 6, 14 to 15. If you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your transgressions. These verses immediately follow the Lord's Prayer, in which Jesus teaches us to pray the words, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's simply no way around the fact that these words of Jesus are conditional statements. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Forgive us as we forgive others. Focusing on inner disposition may help us understand this. It isn't so much that God is willfully withholding forgiveness from us until we can forgive others. Rather, in keeping with the rest of the sermon, what Jesus may be referring to is this. Our own inner disposition is what either allows us to receive the grace of forgiveness or prevents us from doing so. If we're busy scurrying around, gathering up that low-hanging fruit, and satisfying ourselves with an empty reward, such as the momentarily good feeling that comes from harboring a grudge or nursing our anger, then we are at least to some degree closed off to grace, closed off to the abundant gift of forgiveness. If that is our inner disposition, then we are not fertile ground for what God wants to give and do in us. We are settling for mere pennies when we could have the gold of God's forgiveness and love. But if we are trying, if we are reaching for that golden fruit at the top of the tree, fruit that includes something as difficult as forgiving someone who has hurt us, if we are trying to do that, then our inner disposition is at least open to grace, open to transformation, open to forgiveness. If we have open hearts and lives, relationships that are pliable enough and selfless enough to give of ourselves for the sake of others, then our hearts will be fertile ground for the forgiveness that God is always extending at every moment to every person. The Sermon on the Mount is classic Jesus, so loving, so demanding. Jesus seems to be telling us to open our eyes, to stop settling, to take off our masks, to stop acting, to reach higher, to know God, to be known by God. We can only imagine what it was like to hear these teachings straight from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew tells us that when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes.
Clearly, the crowds believed that Jesus had the authority to teach this challenging, transforming message. But just in case any question about Jesus' authority remains, the Sermon on the Mount is immediately followed by numerous healings, a nature miracle, and a fantastic exorcism, all in Matthew chapter 8. Clearly, Jesus is not just another teacher or wonder worker. He is the one with the God-given authority to ask us to change our lives. He's the one with the divine authority to ask us to dig a little deeper or to reach a little higher. And he promises us that there are good things, golden things, in store if we do so. If we build our inner houses, our inner dispositions, on the strong foundation of his word. Everyone who listens to these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and buffeted the house, but it did not collapse. It had been set solidly on rock. <laughs>